This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Thank you. Thank you, Dean Miles, and thank you, everyone, for being here. It is a uh, real honor to be giving the Coast Lecture. Students have often asked me if it's weird teaching at the school where I went to law school. And the answer is yes, and it's especially weird giving a Coase lecture at the school I went to law school at. When I was sitting where you were, I would not have uh, predicted this, so I, I'm very honored. Uh, as is customary, I'm going to talk about a core principle of law and economics. So about two years ago, I started a project that looked at the question of um, <clears throat> how big data and artificial intelligence would affect the forms of law. I called that paper the death of rules and standards. Now, rules and standards is a core concept in law and economics. So a friend of mine, a professor at another law, for, uh, another law school, said, you should try to show some humility. He said, you're coming here now, a young professor, saying that you're going to declare the death of entire field when many of my colleagues have made their entire career by talking about rules and standards. So when I was asked to give the Coase lecture and thought, I'm going to talk about the death of rules and standards, I checked myself. I decided to show a little humility. And so instead, today, I'm going to talk about the life of rules and standards. <laughs> but you can, you can consider a eulogy of sorts. Now, before delving too far in, I do want to talk a little bit about that paper, The Death of Rules and Standards, which, while not the focus of this talk, is important to it. Uh, in that paper, I suggested that if machines could predict outcomes better than humans, that they could write laws that were very vague, like drive reasonably, and then translate, I'm sorry, that lawmakers could write laws that were very vague, like drive reasonably, and then the computers could translate them into laws like drive 55.3 miles per hour on this given road at this given time, and the machine could communicate that law to the driver at that exact moment that it becomes relevant. And so the lawmakers saying drive reasonably and the driver seeing 55.3 miles per hour. And I suggested that we might do this for all of law. And then I, I thought, well, these aren't quite rules and they're not quite standards and they look different for the users than they do for the drafters. So I called them micro-directives. When people read the paper, several other objections were raised, two that I want to mention. So one group of people said, this is just the death of rules. And another group of people said, this is just the death of standards. Now, those two criticisms are, are a little hard to reconcile, so I kind of thought about it for a while, dropped the footnote flag in the issue, and then moved on. However, over time, I've come to think that this issue, how we talk about rules and standards, is really, really important. And so I've come to conclude that, like much legal scholarship, the most important part of my article was actually in a footnote. That's footnote number nine. The point it raises is that there's a disconnect between what people mean when they say rules and standards and what other people mean when they say rules and standards. And this is a, strikingly, this is a striking disconnect given how important that concept is for law. It is one of the two or three most central themes talked about across all areas of law. If you don't believe me about that, consider the following. On Hein Online, you can find 5,000 articles, more than 5,000 articles, with the, rules, rule, with the words rules and standards in the title, both words. And that's not even counting all of the articles that are about rules and standards that don't include those words, because they talk about form and substance and rulemaking and discretion. 
You can find articles on the rules and standards of antitrust, the rules and standards of patent law, the rules and standards of constitutional law. There is even an article called Rules, Standards, and Geeks. Now, the idea, it seems, is everywhere. People are always saying, isn't this just rules and standards? And it's actually kind of a fun trick that I suggest you try in class. When anyone mentions anything about the law, respond, isn't that just rules and standards? So if someone says originalism, that's rules and standards. Someone says freedom of speech, rules and standards. (laughs) Democrats and Republicans, standards and rules. Freedom and equality, rules and standards. The entire 1991 term of the U.S. Supreme Court, you guessed it, rules and standards, don't believe me, 106 Harvard Law Review 22, 1992. Okay, so it always fits, people always use it, it applies everywhere. We should be skeptical of a concept that applies to everything under the sun. And so that is the main topic of my talk today. I want to suggest the rules and standards has always been a little misleading and misused. That nonetheless, there was a brief time when it was really helpful to move the academy forward, and that that time is coming to an end. So where do we start when we talk about the life of rules and standards? Most writers today would start with Duncan Kennedy's 1996 article, Form and Substance in Private Law Adjudication. The article is hugely important in legal theory, and it always is listed as one of the most cited law review articles of all time. But it is an odd place to start. You see, most people citing it cite it for its definition, most rules and standards people citing it cite it for its definition of rules and standards and delineation of the boundaries of that concept. However, those definitions were not new or critical to Kennedy's theory. To grossly oversimplify, Kennedy's main point was that form and law is a tool of substance in politics and that arguments in favor of rules track arguments arguments tied with individualism and self-reliance. Whereas whereas arguments in favor of standards track ideas of altruism, sharing, and sacrifice. So for him, the definitions of rules and standards were only incidental to this larger point about legal theory and doesn't tell us much about where we are starting and what the law and economics idea of rules and standards is. So where else could we look? I could go much further back. I could go a couple hundred years to Bentham. Bentham presented an intriguing theory of rules where legislatures pass specific strict rules, but judges apply them as if they're standards. But why stop there? We could go even further back. Aristotle has been invoked by Scalia to defend rules. He's been invoked by others to defend standards. At this point, you should be wondering about my title. right? So everything I've just said suggests that rules and standards has had quite a long life but I want to talk about the happy life. Now, my title, you may have noticed, is a not-so-subtle reference to a Hemingway short story, The Short Happy Life of Francis McComer. In that story, the main character is a coward. He runs away from lions and has lived a long, unhappy life. On a hunting trip, there's an incident with a buffalo where he gains his courage and becomes happy and is shortly thereafter shot in the head. The story's major themes are courage and the meaning of life. So why am I referring to Hemingway with all the controversies that that might bring? Two reasons. First, I want to argue that there was a short happy life of rules and standards where it achieved its task bravely and did not run from lines. Second, Judge Posner. 
Now that requires a little explaining. So you see, if you want to read legal scholarship on the controversies in Hemingway, you should read Judge Posner's essay on Hemingway in Professor Martha Nussbaum and Professor Saul Abmore's book from a conference that happened at the law school on masculinity in American law and literature. And if you want, to get to my point, to identify the birth of the happy life of laws and standards, you should also read Judge Posner. This time, his 1974 article with Isaac Ehrlich in our Journal of Legal Studies, an economic analysis of legal rulemaking. Now, the main goal of that article was to show when rules might be preferable to standards and when standards might be preferable to rules. And while, others, while, while theirs is a preliminary inquiry, it contains at least a passing identification of every angle and every important aspect that later law and economics scholars talk about when they talk about rules and standards. Now, it then is the birth of the law and economics life of rules and standards, which, and bear with me because this is a Coe's lecture, I will suggest is the happy life of rules and standards, the law and economics life. In the article, Posner gives a definition for rules and standards and doesn't find it very difficult. It's pretty straightforward. So we have a definition. A standard indicates the kinds of circumstances that are relevant to a decision on legality and is thus open-ended. A rule withdraws from the decision-maker's consideration one or more of the circumstances that would be relevant to decision according to a standard. So drive reasonably as a standard because it allows the judge to consider the various circumstances like rain and weather and traffic and all of those sorts of things. Drive 55 miles an hour is a rule because it removes those factors from the judge's consideration. And so we have rules and standards setting a difference between what factors the judges may consider. Now I want to extract from the article beyond the definition what are the essential features and questions that make the, laws and, the, the law and economics rules and standards question interesting. First, they, are, they identify one question as who decides the content of the law. This is a question of institutional competence, of interinstitutional dynamics, of checks and balances. The question is, if you have triggers in law that are set ex ante, the legislature is likely to set them. If you have triggers in law that are set ex post, judges are likely to set them. Now, it's not black and white. There are cases where it'll be slightly different. Police officers might set them. Judges might do other things. For example, judges can turn standards into rules. And when they do that, the judges are now facing the rule standards question. And they're deciding whether or not to turn a standard into a rule or leave it as a standard. So it's not always a who question, but it often is. And that was the point they raised. This point is often associated with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who talked the second point about judges making uh, standards into rules, is often associated with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who made the point and suggested over time judges tend to do this. Keep that in mind as we travel this territory. Second, when do we create content? So if we decide between a rule and a standard, we are deciding whether or not to create content at the moment that we create the law, the rule, or punt on it later with the standard. Rules are ex ante and standards are ex post. To create, law, to create laws, lawmakers must figure out the content of the rules and fill it in. This is a promulgation cost. They must decide what the rule should be, they must negotiate what the rule should be, and they must draft it. The corollary of that is if they don't expend the cost to promulgate it, well, the law will have a poor fit. And fit can be expanded to include lots of things. So if a law 
can't be changed over time as circumstances change, it has a poor fit. If citizens can find a way to evade the law, it has a poor fit. If you're sitting at a stoplight when no one else is on the road, that's an over-inclusive law that has a poor fit. So the more you spend ex ante in a rule, the better it might fit. Now, there might be a limit to how much you can actually spend and how perfect you can get a rule. The ex post option is standards. Standards don't require ex ante information to be gathered. Rather, you punt to the later court, later decider, to fill in the content. Well, that requires, in our system, litigating each specific case. That's the cost of ex post fit. You have to figure out what the law should be for each particular case. Along with that goes the cost of uncertainty. So if I'm a citizen and I'm trying to decide what to do, and at the time that I'm acting I don't know what the law is, I have uncertainty. Now if you want, you can call call that the cost of getting advice to reduce the certainty. So I can hire a lawyer, reduce my uncertainty, tell me what the law is going to be, predict what a court's going to say, or I can just live with the uncertainty. If I live with the uncertainty, the law might have a chilling effect. That is to say, if I don't know whether a certain action is legal, I will avoid engaging in that action at all. Sometimes we don't care about the chilling effect if we're chilling socially undesirable behavior. Sometimes we do care if we're chilling socially valuable behavior. All of this comes together to suggest an often repeated point, which is frequency matters. So ex post rulemaking requires laws up front, and those rules are in place and have economies of scale. They apply to all issues that come up in the future. If something happens exactly the same way over and over again, rules are really good. If something happens in a different way each time and doesn't happen that often, we might be willing to incur the litigation cost for each case rather than expend the cost for the legislature to predict every possible outcome that might happen. All right. So we have then this analysis, and I'm going to throw in one final thing. Ex post reasoning and pre-commitment. Posner bracketed this and said it wasn't that important, but I'm going to suggest, and most people have written about this since then, have suggested it is important. This is to say that with a standard, the government can just pick and choose what it wants to do after the fact. This allows for governments to be arbitrary, whereas rules pre-commit them to a certain course of action ahead of time. And in that world, we keep the government from engaging in such arbitrary behavior if we're worried about it as such with rules. With standards, we allow it. All right, so that's the main article. That's the kind of baseline on which we think about rules and standards. A non-economist might not like the article. They might say, you know, it's only 23 pages and only has 34 footnotes, and it doesn't talk about politics or conservatism or altruism, and it doesn't tell me what law is. But it does give me two things. It gives me a testable hypothesis for whether the form of law is driven by form, cost like this, or substance, And it gives me a roadmap for how to decide on the form if I think that efficiency and and cost matter. And so eight years later, a young professor at the University of Chicago published his first law review article. It was entitled, Rules, Standards, and the Battle of Forms. And in it, Douglas Baird gives us the early glimpse of what I'm going to call the happy life of rules and standards. He looks at all the factors Posner identified, He gives us a conclusion about what contract law between merchants should look like, and he even throws in his his own nice footnote, number 79, that makes it clear that he is in the Posner world. He notes, we're looking for efficient laws, and that, quote, neither choice entails making any distinct social group of contract parties better or worse off than another. 
This is a decidedly law and economics view of the problem, and today it's very familiar to all of us. There are other examples like this throughout the 80s and 90s, which are the examples of the beginning of the happy life of rules and standards. But that line of scholarship should not suggest to you that life was all happy all the time. The definitions supplied were straightforward on their face. Rules have hard and formal triggers. Standards have soft, undetermined triggers. But it's difficult to apply those in a world where words are taken to mean different things and judges sometimes ignore the law. The classic example is vehicles, no vehicles in the park. Is that a rule or a standard? It depends on what you take vehicles to mean. In the laws and standards literature, there's another example, a a law prohibiting vulgar behavior. If you take vulgar behavior to cover a fixed set of things, that's a rule. If you take vulgar behavior, as I think most of us do, to cover an open-ended set, that is, if I see new behavior, I might apply vulgar behavior to it, then it's a standard. The problem arises when some people say it's a fixed set, some people say it's an open-ended set, and other people opportunistically take it to be whatever they want it to be in that case. In those cases, we don't know whose perception we should look at in deciding whether something is a rule or a standard. This question, this, this whose perspective question, has not been addressed in much of the literature. It's often ignored. Moreover, there's a deeper question of whether the definitions of rules and standards are themselves hard rules. What do I mean by that? Well, if I can identify the essence of a rule, does that mean that I don't have to worry about the strict definition? So if I go back to my slide, if, a, if something creates uncertainty, does that make it a, a standard? If something creates pre-commitment, does that make it a rule? Or in my who decides question, if I have a dispute between two laws that have the same triggers and so we don't know, we can't use the formal definitions of rules or standards to distinguish them, but one allocates power to one source of, of government and another allocates power to another source, is that a rules or standards debate? Now let me give you an example to put some meat on that. Professor John Rappaport has an important article in which he he advocates what he calls second-order regulation, second-order regulation of law enforcement. A first-order regulation speaks directly to police officers. It tells them what to do. A second-order regulation speaks to administrators who regulate police. It tells them what to do. Now, on its face, you might think, based on what I just said with the last slide, that this is a rules and standards question. Many people did. Professor Rappaport explicitly rejects this. He writes that his main point is about buy-in and the legitimacy of law based on its source, not its form. Quote, a first-order decision is one addressed to line agents. It may announce either a rule or a standard. Indeed, the Supreme Court's first-order criminal procedures, procedure decisions do employ both rules and standards. Now, if I were trying to be cute, I would interject. But Professor Rappaport I asked you, aren't first-order regulations standards, and, or just rules? I asked you, first-order regulations are just rules. And you said no, because sometimes they're standards. But for me to understand that response, we have to have a shared understanding of what rules and standards are. And let's just say that for me, the essential nature of the rules and standards debate is about allocating power. And I can cite a very long pedigree of legal scholarship to support that. So. Isn't your main thesis that second-order regulation is about allocation of power, therefore you're talking about rules and standards? At this point, Professor Rappaport should be furious at me because I'm playing an obviously semantic game. It cannot be that any distinction 
about which institution gets to make a decision is a question of rules and standards. Sure, the form of law is part of the calculus, but his entire theory is premised on the, the idea that the source of the law was more important than its form. It seems to me, then, when we talk about institutional competence and the source of law, we should talk about institutional competence and the source of law and not make it a rules and standards debate. But much of the legal scholarship does turn it into a rules and standards question. One leading scholar writes, Professor Fred Schauer writes, I avoid frequently overstated arguments for certainty and predictability, and instead concentrate largely on rules as devices for the allocation of power. He is often cited as the rules and standards person. Now, I'm not saying that his question is not an important one, nor do I have a major critique with his articles, but to say that that allocation of power is part of the essential nature of rules and standards is to misuse those phrases and those terms. I know this because rules and standards decisions arise even when judges are restraining judges. In 1989, Justice Scalia had an essay, Rule of Law as Law of Rules. He noted that the who decides question was besides the point for law made by judges. For him and for judges, the rules and standard question was about whether the judges will constrain themselves in future cases. He came out in favor of general rules because they pre-commit judges for those cases, thus avoiding the abuse of discretion problem and reducing uncertainty. He wanted to tie his own hands in future cases to comply with the rule of law. You might say, wait, that's still a who question just across time. Maybe, but it's not the same as asking whether judges or legislators are better equipped to make laws. It's rather about asking whether lawmaking government, fractured or whole, unified or in parts, has bound itself in the future to certain courses of action. The problem exists regardless of whether judges are elected and regardless of what we think about checks and balances. All of this is to say that the happy life of rules and standards needs a defined, workable, useful space within the essence of the question where we can move the academy forward. The use of rules and standards as a label to, to talk about broader questions is, however, pervasive. The phrase used in standards is, is constantly shifting from one argument to another. Many use it to denote not the choice of hard or soft triggers, but about questions that go to the fundamental nature of law itself. This has led many to theorize that rules don't even exist. They don't exist because at some point a judge can always find an exception to not follow them. In a 1995 article entitled Problems with Rules, then University of Chicago professor Cass Sunstein addressed this point. On rule skepticism, he conceded that yes, rules are imperfect, but, quote, a system committed to the rule of law is committed to limiting official discretion, but it's not committed to the unrealistic goal of making every decision according to judgments fully specified in advance. Rules are an admirable device for obtaining agreement on the content of law and also for reducing discretion at the point of application. They do exist. Sunstein talks about this at length in the article, and the questions it raises are deep. They go to formalism, realism, positivism, the legal theories of Dworkin, Hart, Fuller, and others. Now, I'm not going to go into much detail here, in part because I'm not qualified to do so, in part because it relates to questions entirely separate from what Judge Posner and Professor Baird and the Law and Economics folks were talking about when they were talking about rules and standards and giving us a model. If we take rules and standards to be about the fundamental nature of law and formalism, we can never even get to those questions. There will always be someone who says, yeah, but can you even defend the fact that rules exist? And if the answer is no, you kind of shouldn't be answering those questions. 
But empirically, as Sunstein suggested, there's an enormous amount of cases where the form of law matters, and it does constrain, even if imperfectly, the outcome of the case. Why is that true? I'm not sure. It might be norms. It might be that judges don't care enough to disobey the law in most cases. And so if instructed to follow the rules, they follow them. If instructed to apply a standard, they apply a standard. Maybe when it comes to abortion and death penalty in Bush v. Gore, there's no such thing as rules versus standards. But when it comes to the battle of forms between merchants, there certainly is. All right, so let's take stock. I have identified two candidates for the essential nature of, of law and economic. Sorry, for the essential law and economics nature of rules and standards. Who decides the content of law and when do we create it? I basically rejected the who decides question and suggested when is where we should be focused. The when question is a question of how much promulgation costs are we willing to put forward to get ex ante fit? Or on the other side, how much does advice cost to reduce uncertainty? How much litigation does it cost to, reduce ex, to get ex post fit? And then there's that pre-commitment issue that I addressed and said I'm going to come back to. The importance of this when question is at the heart of Lewis Kaplow's theory in his 1992 article, Rules versus Standards in Economic Analysis, which you can tell by the title is going to be among the most important articles I talk about today. Kaplow tells us that for his model, we can simplify everything down to when the decision to fill the content is made. He tells us the only distinction between rules and standards is the extent to which efforts to give content to the law are undertaken before or after individuals act. He has his own nice footnote, number four, bracketing questions about whether or not rules are possible, bracketing allocation, and specifically bracketing everything Professor Fred Schauer has said. Now, one of my main themes, this does put us in a kind of odd place. Professor Schauer has bracketed all of Kaplow, and Kaplow has bracketed all of Shower, and they're the two of the most cited people on rules and standards. So when people say rules and standards, we really don't know what they're talking about. And we tend to use, need lots and lots of long explanatory footnotes. But Professor Kaplow goes even further. He takes pre-commitment out, and he holds fit and certainty constant. So that all he's talking about is comparison of costs. We just have promulgation, promulgation advice, and enforcement. So where I had this, he gives us this. You just add up the first two, I'm sorry, you just add up the second two, compare it to the first, and therefore, and there you get your answer of which form you should use, whichever has a lower cost. That tells us that frequency really does matter because promulgation is a one-time thing and advice and litigating come up every time a case is disputed, but never if it isn't. So he says, here's your, here's your formula. If you want ex-ante rules, you better show me that promulgation is effective and cheap. If you want ex-post standards, show me that advice and litigation are effective and cheap. And frequency will almost always determine the answer there. Now this is a little artificial. It's a little artificial mostly because if we hold fit and uncertainty constant, the lawmaker is deciding about the difference between a rule and a standard at the moment they're making the law, and they're doing it without knowing what the standard looks like. Kaplow assumes that lawmakers can actually think in their mind what the complex standard that looks just like the rule would be. But they don't do that. They never have done that, and they can't. This point has been pointed out by two of my colleagues, Professor Eric Posner and Professor David Weisbach. They both point out that lawmakers have to make the decision about the form of law without knowing anything about the complexity of the standard. 
Indeed, if lawmakers spent all the resources to figure out what a standard would look like, they would have already gained enough information to write the perfect rule. And so they say this can't match reality. So it's not the happy life of rules and standards. Because as Ronald Coase tells us, citing Joan Robinson, an economic theory should be judged both on its tractability and its correspondence to the real world, and this doesn't quite fit the real world. We need to throw a little more reality back into it. Professor Eric Posner does that in his 1997 article, Standards, Rules, and Social Norms. After establishing the difficulty of mapping Kaplow's idea onto the real world, he reintroduces the pre-commitment element under the label rule of law. Posner says, Posner gives us an example from the Soviet Union where people were punished not for specific behavior, but because they didn't meet a general standard of citizenship. He tells us that we should expect people to over-comply with those standards and governments to abuse their discretion and exercise expanding control. And people will then start doing all sorts of things to signal that they're a good person that shouldn't be punished. In his extreme example, he writes, even if the state expresses no opinion on these issues, specific behaviors, but punishes anyone deemed unpatriotic, people will struggle to act in conformity with whatever norms they think the state would approve. And that's the effect of standards taken to their most abstract level. Rules, on the other hand, pre-commit the government to behave in a certain way so that they cannot twist the law selectively to punish people deemed to be bad citizens. So we need to put pre-commitment back in to our, our calculus. I'll note something interesting, though, about pre-commitment. It's not the same as uncertainty. Maybe we'll assume it is, but it's not. I don't really have to know the content of a rule for there to be pre-commitment. I just need to know that the government can't change it after I act so that they, so that they are pre-committed even if I treat it like a standard and don't know. So we have uncertainty and pre-commitment as two separate factors that we're thinking about. Uncertainty might not be that important on its own. After all, for huge areas of law, we actually don't care. You treat rules like standards all the time and act as if the legislator acted reasonably. Think about murder. How many lawyers, have, non-lawyers, have ever actually checked the laws on murders? I would guess that most people don't even know which government, federal or state, gives the rules that prohibit them from murdering, much less what those explicit rules are. Now you might say, yeah, but no one's engaged in that kind of behavior. Not that many people are engaged in that kind of behavior, so it's not that important. Okay, take speed limits. Most people think they're a rule. I did, but that's not right. If you read David Weisbach's article, he tells us most states, including Illinois, have statutes that say you can be prosecuted for driving at an unreasonable speed even if you're below the speed limit. That uncertainty should, I suppose, keep me up at night, but it doesn't. I'm not bothered by the fact. I don't hire lawyers to help me predict what the law should, is going to be in a particular situation. For most of us, law is like that, and most laws are like that. It's just not something that bothers us. But let's stick with the speed limit for a second. What if we think the police or the courts are racist? Then maybe we should be bothered. Not because it's unpredictable or uncertain, but precisely because it is predictable and is certain that governments will use their discretion to pull someone over for the wrong reasons. So we would rather there be a rule that constrains the government, pre-commitment, even if we don't care what the content of the rule is and don't check. And this is, again, where pre-commitment separates from uncertainty. Pre-commitment is crucial and important even where uncertainty doesn't matter. And with that, I can now identify the high watermark of the happy life of rules and standards. 
And you will, I hope, forgive me for praising the work of my colleagues a little too much, because I'm going to mark that point, the buffalo hunt in the short, happy life of Francis McComer, if you will, as David Weisbach's 1999 essay in the University of Chicago Law Review, Formalism and Tax Law. Weisbach gives us a model for choosing between or combining rules and standards. And importantly, he doesn't care who promulgates it, he just cares about the form. He points out, consistent with what we've seen, that the flip side of this commitment that I've been talking about as being really important is evasion. If we know what the government's committed to, then we can evade. The government gives you specific rules, and you figure out how to get around them. These are loopholes in tax. People have heard of this. should be familiar. He says if you look at it, the infrequently, the infrequent and uncommon becomes common precisely because you've given me a rule that doesn't cover it. One way to prevent this would be to make laws even more complex. But that, comes, that becomes an arms race of sorts. We get ever-increasing complexity, people trying to get around it, and we ultimately hit the limit where laws can't become more complex than they already are. So he gives us an alternative. Throw in a residual anti-abuse standard. Give us a really, really specific rule, but a standard that says if people delve into the un- unusual, we're going to find it abuse if it is abuse. And we'll look at it and see what's reasonable. This combination provides some certainty and binds the government over the ma- most of the universe of common transactions. You, the citizen, don't run into a rule of law problem unless you delve into the unusual. There's still a problem here. The government's the one interpreting unusual, so that you don't really have a pre-commitment. I don't think Professor Weisbach has a way out of this. But he does give us that the whole issue of rules and standards for tax falls to the balancing of this evasion on one side and pre-commitment on the other side. Now, as a side note, I really like the article because it has another sentence that explores ideas for how we might also use residual standards. He writes, another approach is to promulgate a standard but include examples of the application of the standard to common situations. I like this because it's 18 words long and it completely predicts the thesis of a Columbia Law Review article that was published 16 years later. Therefore, Weisbach did it first and he did it more efficiently, which is, of course, the Chicago way. (laughs) But let's go back to my buffalo hunt. The article as a whole crystallizes the problem as this. We have the risk of evasion and the risk of government abuse. Decide between the two, and you're deciding between rules and standards in the tax law. If rules and standards can help us see the question of tax that way, they really are useful, and they really can advance both the academy and the practice. But, and now I must fully torture my analogy, there has to be the death blow, the shot to the head. And it doesn't come from me. As you all probably should have expected, it comes from Professor Levmore. (laughs) So... Professor Ledmore responds to Weisbach in an essay in the same Law Review volume titled Double Blind Lawmaking and Other Comments on Formalism in Tax Law. Ledmore suggests that we can do even better than rules coupled with residual standards. He says, imagine now a scheme in which the government wrote the rules but withheld complete information about their content. Think about that for a minute. There's a lot going on in that sentence. It's one of those sentences I wish I had written. If the government writes a rule but doesn't reveal the details until after the fact, we're solving the pre-commitment problem and we're solving the evasion problem. The only thing left is the uncertainty problem, and he has reasons to suggest that in many cases that'll be small, and we can give a standard to the public and a rule that's going to be applied. We don't need rules plus a standard, we just need this law whose content is revealed afterward. 
So let's do what he says and, and play out what this looks like. If we imagine that this happens, we add a question to my list. Who decides when do they create content and when do they reveal it? I bracketed the who decides, so we have the other two, and we can look at law this way. The first column, we have when legal content is created. On the row on the top, we have when the legal content is revealed. Rules are revealed and created at legislation. Standards are revealed and created after the fact. And the Ledmore laws are revealed after the fact, but created at legislation. For each I've marked, it's the way it plays out with fit, evasion, pre-commitment, certainty, and the like. Now, if you look at this, I pose to you the question, is the Ledmore law a rule or a standard? It's like the tree that falls in a forest that no one hears. If a rule is written down but no one reads it, is it a rule, is it a standard, or is it something else? The main takeaway is we do not have a straight line continuum from certainty to uncertainty, as many have suggested, because we have things off the continuum where we have four factors being dynamically combined. If you want to compare just the rule and the standard, you take fit and evasion and you compare it to pre-commitment and certainty. Right? If pre-commitment and certainty are important, if, if pre-commitment's important, you want to have a rule. If certainty is important, you want to have a rule. But if fit and evasion are important, all right, if fit is important, you want to have a standard. And if, evasion is, if lowering evasion risk is important, you want to have a rule. All of these factors can be compared in pairs. But when we throw in the Levmore rule, you have a different dynamic. This allows you to achieve low evasion without sacrificing pre-commitment. In cases where you don't care about certainty, you would never choose a rule because it's dominated on every other metric. In cases where you don't care about fit, you would never choose a standard because it's dominated on every other metric. Interestingly, Lebmore's approach is actually the inverse of the Bentham approach I mentioned at the beginning. Bentham talked about laws that are announced as rules but applied as standards. Lebmore gives us laws that are announced like standards but applied as rules. If I tried to put Bentham here, I'd probably put it in that blacked out square. But the problem is that's not real. We're only pretending that they're rules. The certainty is imaginary, and the prediction, the prediction value it brings is also imaginary. So it's not actually possible. Now we can complicate this a little more. We can throw in the choice to reveal things at the time of action. So we have created an action, revealed an action. This doesn't happen that much in the current state of the world, but I'll add technology in a bit. But before we add technology, created an action, revealed an action, looks like an advanced tax ruling. An advanced tax ruling gives low pre-commitment because the government is applying the rules to a specific case. It's case by case. But it gives high certainty because the person knows that if they comply with the ruling, that they're not going to be prosecuted. It gives middle fit and middle evasion risk. The IRS does this with advanced tax rulings. The SEC does it with no action letters. We could also throw in something where we create the content at legislation, reveal it at action. I think stoplights are like this. If you think about it, when exactly you have to stop isn't told to you until you get there. But we don't see it very often. Finally, you could do create at action, reveal after action. I don't know of any real world examples of this. These are all clunky and theoretic, and that's why we don't see them that often. And the reason they're clunky and theoretic is we don't have the technology to instantaneously create content and reveal it at the moment you need to use it. But if we add technology, we do. If you add technology, you can, do, you can create laws at the moment they're relevant, reveal them at the moment they're relevant. 
And you can do it afterwards, you can do it before, you have all these options open. So you're driving along and you get your speed limit at that exact moment. Now importantly, notice that pre-commit becomes high along the whole chart. Why? Because if the government puts in place a computer algorithm, they can commit not to change the algorithm. The algorithm updates to get better fit, that's the fit high, fit highest, given the facts that arise in the world. But no human needs to touch it and exercise their discretion, or to put it negatively, their arbitrary reasoning based on how the distributive outcome plays out. The government can pre-commit ahead of time, but still allow the, the computer to update, give us better fit along the way. Now I changed the middle fit from middle to high to show that in the da big data world, the rules created at the moment of action are actually pretty well fit. There's only a marginal benefit when you go lower to the bottom right-hand corner. Now, this has interesting implications, because if you play through all of these various comparisons, you'll see that some of these are strictly dominated. You would never be up in the upper right with the Levmore Law, because you're always better off to go down too. You get better fit, and you're the same on everything else. So we actually can cross those two out. If you compare the middle, middle and the top middle, the same thing is true. We have high fit compared to low fit, and then everything else is the same. So we'd rather go there. And that's the micro-directive I talked about in the death of rules and standards. You get your data at the moment you need it, and it tells you how to comply with the law. But we can go further. The rule is dominated by the micro-directive because it has better fit, better evasion risk, and the same pre-commitment and certainty. So now we're down to this, the choice between these two things. And here we're deciding based on fit, evasion, and certainty. Pre-commitment's the same, so we don't need to consider that. And so, when I originally wrote the Death of Rules and Standards, I didn't think about this lower right-hand corner. I just thought about the middle one. And I thought, we don't have a choice anymore. We just, program, we just use the program to get a micro-directive. The Ledmore article tells me we do have a choice. We can add a slight delay, and we get a better outcome when we really worry about evasion. If we're really worried about certainty, we don't want to do that. But I told you earlier, there's a whole bunch of cases where certainty's not all that important, so we don't care. So in those cases, it's easy. We do the delayed version. In the few cases where certainty's really important, maybe we do the middle version. But in any event, we know how to make the decision. We have a choice between these two options. But looking at it, I'm now starting to think I've been wrong this entire time. Because, well, maybe that's a standard and that's a rule. This is just revealed later, and that's revealed earlier. It's not turning on uncertainty. It's not turning on, it's not turning on when we create the content of the law, necessarily, because it's giving fit in both cases. It's just turning on when we reveal the law. Do we want the Levmore delay or not? And maybe that's the question that we really face when we're looking at the form of law in the future when we get the technology we need. And so then looking at it, I say, wow. Death of, the rules and standards are alive. This is the happy life of rules and standards. However, I'm fairly certain it's going to be short because I'm about to open it up to all of your critiques. So. Questions? Yeah. So uh, one 
dimension by which we might evaluate different legal tools other than the ones you've listed is the public confidence in them. And I think you know, perhaps one reason we're resistant to judicial lawmaking is precisely because it is a delayed micro-directive. Mm -hmm. We value the idea of the rule existing before it's revealed to us, even if that's just by algorithm. Um, so I guess the question is, would that, doesn't that fact um, push strongly in the direction of rules? So we have to isolate what we mean when we say uh, public confidence in law, right? So is, is it, is, if it's because they don't believe in it, then it's captured in the pre-commitment idea, right? So we, we might want to pre-commit because we don't trust the government when they're doing something after. That's covered in what I was talking about. The idea is, you know, you're, you think it's, it's unlawful, inconsistent with the rule of law when the judge decides something after the fact. I think that was that goes that, that, if you, in the Levmore article. It really gets to that point with we don't trust the government. If we get them to commit ahead of time, they they tied their own hands. It gains legitimacy if that's what we worry about. Now, if you're saying no, it's it's not it, it's not legitimate because it's not revealed and the people need to know it. Then we're talking about certainty, which I think we could lots of areas we we would push that away. Now, something else might be going on to say no. There's something about the interaction between citizen and government where the government tells me the law, I can find the law, I can criticize the law, and we can kind of have this civic debate that is valuable in itself. Yeah, I think that's right. Like, that could be there. That would make kind of the analysis I ended with not cover it. I don't think that's a rules and standards question as much as kind of like a civic debate question. And I, I will speculate my own view is very, very... If that's true in areas of the law, it's very few of them, because most areas we don't see that happening, right? So most of law is, there's laws in the books, I don't know what they are, they become relevant, I find out what they are, and we don't have that value at play. What do you predict the domain of micro-directives will be in, say, 2020? Um, I, it's easy for me to see um, that you could have an algorithm to figure out the micro-directive for traffic. Yeah. Figuring out algorithms to drive cars, um, but what it seems like much of law is perhaps difficult to reduce to an algorithm. Uh, I, I, in criminal law, we, I think it's clear that we uh, we don't specify some things because we just leave it up to the jury. And we, if you look closely at the law, we, we we're nowhere close to being able yeah. to actually say what 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 the law is. Um, and that's on purpose. And then I think of things like child custody, and I wonder about public confidence in an algorithm that would, you know, uh, it would be pre-commitment. There would be no uh, opportunity for uh, human bias or corruption, but, you know, would people actually stand for uh, child custody to be determined by the computer? Yeah, so I think there's there's two parts to that. So one is, over what areas will will technology be sufficient to allow for microdirectives? That's question one. Two, even when that's true, over what areas will the public accept it, even if true? So, you know, if, if we look at the, the first part of the question, I think we're seeing lots of this in tax law, so we have people, have, companies have been started that predict tax outcomes of courts, and we, there was an article a few months ago about uh, an algorithm that could predict the human rights rulings of the international courts as better than any human could, better than any lawyer could. So that gets to the point where you, wow, if, if they can do better than lawyers, they can 
probably do it better than the judges. Those are just, you're just comparing machines to people. There's data showing that in bail cases, in release cases, in all kinds of areas, technology is getting better and better. So I think, oddly, my, my analysis about driving is bad because by the time it's good enough in driving, we'll have self-driving cars because it's the same technology. So it kind of doesn't work there. But I think we will see it capable in ever-expanding areas. So by 2020, I think tax law, I think regulatory areas. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know the child custody area well enough. Although, I, I don't know well of 2020. Ten years from now, I think possibly. The second question is much harder. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was this morning, about self-driving cars and about the, the, the position that the article took was if we could have self-driving cars that only killed 3,500 people, people might not be okay with that, even though human-driven cars kill 40,000 people. And the reason is there's this kind of fear of or aversion to technology or arbitrariness because it would be a different 3,500 dying than it would have been in the first case. At some point then, that starts to sound like controversies over, and the article used refrigerators in the 1920s. Apparently they made health much better, but there were articles about how they exploded occasionally. And then you think of the vaccines, right? So vaccines certainly save lives, but people say, oh, but there's this story about it doing this or that, and there's the bad studies in autism and all that stuff. So those types of forces might come in play here, so I'm not particularly optimistic of the public adopting it uh, in, in any sense. And so in, in the article, Death, Rules, and Standards, we talk about this as saying, in the end, we're more talking about what could happen technology-wise, uh, but the public might fight against it for some time. Although refrigerators are a good example, because ultimately we do have, almost everyone has a refrigerator now. Yes, Saul. Yeah. I mean, nobody tells you in advance what the price is going to be. And people get used to the fact that as it gets closer, you find out the price, and then it has a lot of efficiency properties. Now, if you're one of these people that loves certainty, you can always buy an option in advance, and you can always go into some forward market. And presumably, the data you're describing, I think, will be used more by markets than by law. Law will seem uncertain to the people because it'll be like the market. But if you're one of these people who really wants to know what the tax rate is in 11 years before you build your factory, yeah. you'll go into the market now and buy insurance against future tax rates. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Right? So, and that was why I, I said at the end, I, you know, I talked about briefly the idea that certainty doesn't matter for many cases. And what, this is, what makes this useful then is we take certainty out and it's just the evasion question, so we always do the delay. And that's right. Most of law, as you think about it, you don't, we don't put that high a value on certainty except for criminal law. Jillian Heffield has an article, Professor Jillian Heffield has an article where she talks about how uh, we can ensure against uncertainty almost everywhere except for criminal law. And so the rule of standards debate for her goes away on that metric because you can get insurance, which I think is essentially what you were saying, is you can ensure the certainty and so then evasion is the only problem. So we might accept that bottom right corner and I think, I, I think that's right will dominate. And that's, that's not in the paper, as you know, uh, because I you know, kind of found it as I thought about your article. So, yeah. A couple of questions. So just to follow up uh, on what you were just saying, 
timing from delay in a microdirect signal. Given that we have big data, presumably the the unrevealed results of the algorithm are going to become public knowledge very quickly. So in the sort of the Lovemore law uh, analogy, like once the envelope's open in the first case, now people know what the law is. And so um, so I guess the first question is how much how how much are we actually going to benefit from the fact it's not being revealed in real time, given that uh, you know these delays as a practical matter are not going to be effective uh, in, in the long run? Yeah, so, so this goes to how good our technology is, right? Because if the technology is truly effective and dynamic, it can update and you don't need precedent, right? So just because the machine said yesterday that X is the rule doesn't mean it's the rule tomorrow because now it's going to take into account, and this is, some, this is kind of what's going on in the tax anti-abuse area, is to say, here you announced the specific rule because I thought this is the way you were trying to evade. But then I announced the rule and you find this other way to evade. The anti-abuse standard said, well, I can say, well, a judge can say, that was evasion even though you followed the rules. All right, so now we just say, well, by not revealing the rule, we uh, curb that evasion. So I guess your response, now I take is to the Ledmore version, you'd have to be constantly updating the rule in delay. But in the microdirective version, the technology does that anyway. And as long as you're okay with the lack of precedent, then it, it, it isn't a problem because you can figure out, well, given the new circumstances in the world, given, and one of the circumstances is that yesterday I announced the rule. Yeah, yeah. So another way maybe to think about the distinction between rules and standards, ex ante versus uh, ex post decision making, is about the, uh, the the political costs of of specifying uh, results. And so you might think one of the reasons we have standards, and this goes to why we might actually like judges to be human, is we can't agree on yeah. a rule, even if a rule is a good idea. We just can't agree on it. And what we want to do is down the road, and then the fact that different judges reach different results might actually be a kind of compromise in which we say, well, you know, some of us see things one way, some of us see things another way. The fact that judges reach different results are kind of splitting, um, splitting the difference. What then comes of the question, how do we specify the algorithm? Does that become such a high state mm. affair, given that if there's any bias that we want to correct through the use of an algorithm, the answer yeah. doesn't get baked in in the first place. Does that become politically, practically an problem? Right. So the, the kind of negotiation over the politics is, is part of the promulgation cost. And as you say, sometimes you, you choose a standard because you don't want to go there. Now, Cass, something suggests sometimes you choose a rule because you don't want to go there. Because I can agree on all the principles that I like, and you agree on the principles you like. And occasionally they read the same outcome, so let's not agree on the principles, let's choose the rule. So I... It's a cost either, but your main point is, yeah, but now with the microdirective, it's going to be a cost very plainly to writing the algorithm. Uh, it does make the policy choice that is being made by the lawmaker, the lawmaker in, in that world is the one who sets the objectives for the algorithm. It makes the policy choice extremely important. Uh, it makes your values, the values of your politicians, very transparent. Uh, to the extent that we reveal not what's in the algorithm, but what its objectives are. Uh, you could imagine that that creates political, uh, complete political gridlock. 
then you could write a messy algorithm. Right? You know, it's like it, it means we don't get all the benefits, but it doesn't mean we can't use algorithms. We could choose one that randomizes between our principles. We could choose one that takes into account this and that and, and doesn't get a perfect outcome because no one agrees on a perfect outcome. Uh, but I, uh, you're right, it does create quite a, a, a new tension in lawmaking. Yeah, so people have done experiments in kind of predicting outcomes in cases with algorithms, have struggled with this problem. I think the, the main way to test it is not, I think the unsophisticated way is, oh, you just ask the algorithm what it based its decision on. It turns out you can't really do that. And if you talk to some of the people at, our, um, at the med school, they'll tell you about in the cancer world, there are these algorithms that predict diagnoses. And the doctors can't ask it what it's based on because there's too many factors that have a tiny, tiny influence. So you can't get a, a, a opinion telling you what it was based on. Now, I would also suggest the judicial opinions telling you what their algorithm was based on are not all that reliable either. But putting that aside, the best way to test it is the same way we test those judgments in the academy is data and, and looking at the results. So you say, what, what's the in the world... Have we reduced crime? So like, if you think about self-driving cars, do I know if the, the cars and the algorithms are better than humans? Well, if I put all the self-driving cars on the road and fewer people died, I would. Um, I, I think that's, you know, controlling for different things, I would take that to be the evidence. Much better than what are you basing this, this on? And so a lot has been written in the last year and a half, like 10 articles by various people, about how to deal with disparate impact in algorithms, and so the ways you would try to control for uh, biases that are coming out in the results and de-biasing the algorithm. But you know, my, the optimist in me suggest the kind of technology optimist is that de-biasing algorithms is a problem, but it's not a more intractable problem than de-biasing humans. And so those are that's the way you want to compare it and think about it. Yeah. Certainly, I think that's right, right? So I, in kind of blocking off the squares, I was being a little dramatic, right? So this is the world we're in. No, I think if there's a transition period. There's a period in which, to Professor McAdams' question, we have you know, areas of law where it becomes relevant and not relevant. So I think the, the first two-thirds of my talk was really about that. We have these questions, and what, 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 is, the, what is the debate between traditional rules and standards? Uh, I, I still think... My main theory of the talk holds that that's a muddy debate, and we only get some clarity in kind of the last 15 years with ideas like Professor Weisbach's article showing us in this context, here's what we weigh. And, you know, the early versions in Professor Baird's article in contract law, here's what we weigh. You know, Professor Lemmer throws in this kind of curveball to say, well, maybe we don't weigh that, maybe we have another solution. So I'm trying to say maybe there's another solution, right? Um, so I guess my answer would be yes, they'll still be there, 
But we shouldn't stop thinking about and trying to come up with new solutions for them because the old solutions might be still muddied and, and in some cases they work, in some cases they don't. Yeah, in the back. So doesn't this all come down to the classic debate in intellectual property law, who's better at generating information, the government or the markets? So uh, we could have in your bottom right box uh, a law that says we will penalize you if you don't act in the welfare-maximizing way. And we'll figure that out next post. Uh, and then parties would want to anticipate what that will be, right? If parties are not conforming yeah. their behavior to their expectation of the law, then the law has no efficacy. Uh, so in the middle box, we have uh, private actors who are providing information that is predicting what will happen uh, ex post when the government makes its decision. Uh, sorry, in, in, in the bottom right box, we have private actors yeah. who are providing that information. And in the middle box, it's the government providing that information, right? It's the government telling you uh, beforehand uh, how to behave in a way that maximizes social welfare. And in both boxes, we're trying to figure out how people should behave in a way that maximizes social welfare. And the question is just, is it a firm or is it the government? And, and that's, that's the, the, the decision criteria. So I thought I was following you. I think I, I lost you at the end. So. Uh, you're, so, you're, I know you're going the direction of, of people kind of using private technology to get around the law, but you're saying something different. You're saying... Yeah, people want to know the law, right? Uh, yeah. Otherwise, the law does nothing. Yeah. Uh, so, in the bottom right box, where we're only told ex post uh, what the law is, yeah. people will hire uh, firms to give them micro-directives. And the micro-directives will be trying to predict yes. yeah, you know, yeah. how the government in uh, ex post will uh, adjudicate yes. the welfare. Uh, or we can have the government uh, doing that yeah, micro-directive yes. provision for you. In either case, we're trying to predict how to maximize yeah. social welfare. And it's just who's doing the prediction, the government or the market. Yeah, so I do, yeah, I, now if I agree with that. And in, in, in the death rules and standards, we talk about this in the, the negligence standards with doctors to say you could see this technology developing from the government or in private as people are like, here's the technology to use, and the courts say, if you didn't use that technology, you're negligent. So that's the standard is you have to use the technology, which ultimately means you have a private version of the technology, right? So x-rays are like this. You'd be, you, you'd be negligent not to use an x-ray machine today. Maybe you're negligent not to use a diagnostic machine in the future. And so you could say, in the law, it could be the same way. So absolutely, you could get it from the private side, and the government doesn't have to do anything. The worry, though, is when you're not both trying to maximize social welfare, and we get the evasion problem. And so in ta- this is why I think, you know, what we spoke raised in tax law, the problem is, as soon as I can predict the government's rules, I don't obey them, and I try to find a way around them. And so that's where the delay comes in, where the government might say, do all you want privately, but we're going to do an ex-post look with our algorithm to see that you weren't trying to game the system. And so, that's, so I agree with you 100%, except in cases where the private market is trying to evade.
the law, the rules. Uh, now, for all of its uh, defects, so there are, are, will be a lot of experiments. Some people will call it evasion, and some people will call it innovation. Uh, it provides a certain agency that then uh, can be uh, debated whether we want to make the rule uh, foreclose what was an evasion. Whereas um, it seems like you're advocating what could be characterized as a kind of rise of the machine, <laughs> philosopher king, tyrant that's uh, making these micro rules yes. to uh, uh, basically direct, like it reminds me of the story of the tyrant who wrote the laws and then he put them on a column so high nobody could read them. Mm -hmm. uh, this was uh, not uh, uh, the story. Uh, this is a warning, not a, uh, a, 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 an advocated point. So, uh, right. so so that's a classic attack on, on standards, is that they chill the, the, the behavior that, that is socially valuable because the person doesn't know if that behavior, which is close to the line, uh, is in fact illegal or not. And, and, and so and, and the story about, I think it's Nero who puts it up there, this is, Scalia quotes this at length in his Rule of Law, that's why he liked, Justice Scalia really likes judges to make rules, not standards, because he doesn't want them to be like that, putting the laws out of people's sight. Uh, that's right, and, and I would say that's, that's this decision between certainty here, the low, high certainty. So if we're really worried about that, we want that middle group. We want you, the government to say, we're going to tell you beforehand, because certainty doesn't chill this entrepreneurial behavior. If, sir, if, if we don't think that's important, we would go to the bottom uh, corner. Now, the, the, the question there is, you know, they have to decide between the two, and that's why I said, you know, this kind of comes back, and this looks like a rules and standards decision, because certainty might matter. As I suggested in the back and forth of Press Levmore, there's enormous, and I would say that the vast majority of law, probably certainty is not as important as people make it out to be, uh, you might say in, in a particular entrepreneurial area, so this would cut against our, oh, you can insure against it. You might have another area where, well, in a particularly entrepreneurial area, you want to allow it. Now, that's, that's going to go to the kind of back and forth about debating the policies, because I'm not sure you get a lot of agreement on that. And, right? So people are going to say, yeah, like Uber. And then this goes, yeah, like Uber. And right, I don't know the answer on Uber, um, but... That's, that is the problem. Now, they were, in some cases, just breaking the very certain clear rules uh, and not caring about it, but there was an, an certainly an enforcement that it turned it into a standard. Uh, yeah. So the subject matter, you mean like what we're regulating? Yes. Well, sir, I think that's one frame in which the law is moving, right? So instead, it, it self-driving cars, you'll no longer be regulating human behavior, but machine behavior. There are the decisions between rules and standards is different, and I think favors rules because you have to tell the machine. You know, machines aren't great with standards unless it's phrased as an algorithm, which they can then transfer into their own rules. Um, 
But I do think, uh, ultimately, we have human... I mean, there's this whole question of, like, machine agency. My, you know, my kind of instinct on this is machines are, are, are belong to humans and are tools of, and so we're regulating the owners of them, uh, and then we're just back to the question. But, but certainly, the substance of law might change as the thing you're regulating changes, but I'm not sure that goes to form. Form is the question uh, here. So if the microdirective is perfect, it cannot be evaded, right? So, so, so step one. So if it's, if it's perfect, it can't be evaded. So, but I took all of the questions on evasion that I get when I talk about it to be, okay, there's a world in which it's not perfect. Almost certainly the world that will exist is the, the algorithms are not perfect. Now, you're right to say if, if someone keeps going to the algorithm and saying, what about this, what about this, what about this, yeah, then the algorithm updates and, and you, you can't evade. The worry, I think, is you get a program on your own and you figure out the things that the, that the algorithm isn't worried about but actually matter. And so you structure your behavior in order to defeat the spirit of the law. So then the microdirective looks just like a rule that can be evaded, just like a complex tax rule. So you figure out, they, they and this goes a little bit to where I, I thought Professor Hemmel was going in his earlier question, of they, the government, have this great computer, but I've got a better one, and I can identify all the areas that, that they're not focused on and get around it. Get around, not it being the, the micro-directive, but get around the, the purpose of the program. That would be, I think, how evasion right. looks. How, how does it get figured out later? Like, like how is it then that the lower right box is better? Is it, is it Well, that's one. That would be, if I go back to here, that would be why I have high fit and highest fit. But if it was more on, uh, it's harder for me to gain the, the algorithm when I don't know it. I don't know anything about it. But I could still possibly do it, right? Ultimately, if just I've got the supercomputer and the government doesn't, then nothing can be done, right? But if, you're trying, if you go to the algorithm and it gives you an answer, let's say you do what you said, you get like five answers. Then you go back and run it through your computer and figure out the way to get around. That you can't do in the lower right-hand corner. Because in the lower right-hand corner, you don't get an answer until after the fact. So it becomes harder to do there. That, that's kind of the idea. Is that you, you can see what it's saying you should do, and then you can say, okay, I'll comply with all of what you said, but do this other thing you're not focused on. The after the fact, I don't know if you're focused on that other thing because I haven't asked anything yet. And so it might say, you know, if it just says drive, and the speed doesn't work. Drive 55.3 miles an hour, that's it, right? But if, if it's telling you, you know, 
here's the 17 different things you asked that are, if those are okay in your tax form. And it said yes or no. And then you move the 15th and the 16th. If you don't know what it's going to do until after, you can allow it. And also, yeah, and so that would be the idea behind it. So the, the problem with biases and algorithms is, is essentially that, there, well, there's, one, there's three problems, right? So you could have biased programmers who just put it in. And, and that, that, that's, but you can have that with law too, right? If you just have a biased policymaker, uh, they're going to be able to create it. The worry with algorithms there is you might be able to hide bias even more. Now, that's a worry with standards too. You can hide bias through not making things clear, and they're, they're not clear in a different way with algorithms, is that only like the most highly technical computer programs can figure it out. Uh, another problem is that the algorithm takes into account something that it thinks is relevant, but we don't want it to take into account. Um, and that's easy to fix, because you just tell it not to take that into account. Right? So if there's a statistical correlation that you think, though it's a correlation, it's based on bad history and, and all kinds of bad things in society, don't, don't look at that correlation. The third problem is much more complicated. It's picking up proxy variables. So there's a correlation between one of the variables that the algorithm does think is relevant and because of whatever reasons in our society, that proxies for something that we think is a negative bias. So gender or race come out as results because of some, you know, where people live, something like that. Like, and so now you get that proxy in there. It's much more difficult because it's harder to ask the algorithm what it's basing its outcome on to get rid of the proxy variables. Now you can try, you can kind of examine it and say, what, what, it, you know, what if I change this variable, what if I change this variable? Or you can have a screen on the, on the, on the back end that just says, I'm going to undo the disparate impact that's coming out of the machine. For whatever reason it's in there, I'm going to undo it. And which of those you use is really complicated, but that's kind of how you want to think about it. And you know, my point earlier was, Humans are exactly the same way. So judges have proxy variables or biases. It's a little easier for us to identify when a judge is being just blatantly biased than when they're being subtly biased because of a proxy variable. They don't even realize it themselves. And so it's it's a similar de-biasing, but it's more technical. Yeah, so this is a kind of meta rule standards question. And in the most advanced version of learning technology, it's not an issue because you just give the algorithm its objective and tell it to update. And the idea behind learning algorithms is 
they don't know today what data is going to be important in the future. Now, in kind of the interim steps, and, and the people have kind of been working on predicting judicial outcomes and bail and all that, uh, they're not always using learning algorithms. They're using kind of highly technical but, but kind of more rudimentary algorithms. And so then you would have to have updating. Um, my instinct is to go with the legislative process. And, and so you will get... Uh, you will get stale algorithms just like you get stale rules. Uh, and so, you know, then in the, in the transition period before you have, like, great learning, you, you could result to the kind of Weisbachian kind of backup of a residual standard to say, well, judges can oversee this, and if things go really bonkers, they can kind of step in and, and have an anti-absurdity uh, standard in place. That would be the way to think about it. Yeah. Chuck Whitehead has a great article about this, uh, it's Professor Cornell, about how if we have regulations that are all the same, it, we, it's like the, it's the bridge, it's evolutionary theory, it's all of a sudden you have a potato famine or a bridge that falls apart, and you really want to avoid that. I, I actually think algorithms are better there, because you can tell the algorithm, throw in X amount of variation, throw in Y amount of... You know, like, it, it's easier for me to imagine a computer figuring out that we're going to just be random than humans being random. Because humans, oh, I'm going to vary this. I'm going to change this regulation. That's not random, right? A computer can get much closer to the randomness you'd want if you want kind of positive evolution of, of the system. So absolutely a big worry in setting these things, but I don't think an impossible challenge. So our rule is we have to stop, but the standard, <laughs> standard is whether or not you want to applaud, but I urge all of you to <laughs> thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.